So we are uh, coming to kind of the end of this session in Romans, and then we're going to pick Romans back up in the new year. So for a while, we're going to be looking at some other sections of Scripture. We're going to be um, looking at other sections of Scripture heading into the Christmas season, and then pick back up the second half of Romans. It's an interesting transition point here in Romans, particularly for where we are as a country. We're a very divided country right now. Um, very divided, a lot of bitterness over the election this week. And it's been interesting as we've been studying Romans, Paul has been really aiming at the divisions that exist among the Roman church that really still exist today. They're slightly different labels, but those divisions are not all that different today. Uh, Today we've got uh, people that really believe that sin is an outmoded concept and that the way to really find peace in life is just to pursue your heart. And then we've got a lot of people that believe the way to find the good life is to be a good person, uh, maybe to pretend that we're good people, and that can leave, uh, lead as well to self-righteousness and division. And Paul said, you know what, really, we're all the same as human beings. We all have a problem, and that's sin. And we're all the same in that our only hope is in Jesus, not in political parties. It's not in our affiliations. It's not in where we come from, but our hope is in Jesus. And so what's really interesting is at this point in Romans, Paul turns now and starts using we again and again. Before he was talking about this tribe and that tribe, the Gentiles, the Jews. They're like this, they're like this. And now he's going to really start focusing on the unity that we have in Christ, that we are one family. We're calling it this week in chapter 5, love given to us. Love given to us. It's also you know, God's coincidence, God's perfect timing that in the midst of suffering in our own body, in the midst of suffering that many of you are facing in your own lives, Paul's going to talk a lot about suffering in this passage as well. One of the beautiful things as I was thinking about the love that's given to us in Christ, one of the beautiful things that I've seen take place in our community again and again is adoption. Uh, Many of you have adopted children, many of you are adopted, and in adoption what takes place is someone who is a child without parents is grabbed hold of by a new set of parents. A set of parents that come along and say, I love you, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to bring you into my family, I'm going to love you, and you're going to be a part of me now. And that beautiful picture of adoption that we see again and again in this physical world that uh, the people of our community have been about and that James says is what Christians should be about, caring for the orphan and the widow. Paul says in Romans 8, is what we have in Christ. God has given love to us. He's made us his family. We were on our own. We were orphans. We were just kind of trying to figure life out, scrapping and fighting and clawing and trying to get ahead. And God comes and he grabs hold of us. He gives us life in Christ. So the the text this morning in Romans 5, it doesn't explicitly use the word adoption, but there's a lot of shared terminology in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. And he uses that word again and again in chapter 8. He's talking about the new family that we have. God's poured his love out to us in Christ. He's given us now the Holy Spirit. And so we have a new life together, a new unity as people. And he's going to talk about it here in chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. It's page 942, page 942 in those black Bibles. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me pray and ask God to uh, teach us this. God, we pray that you would make this real in our hearts. We thank you that you are the kind of God that pours yourself out to us, that you give us your love, that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would do that now. Um, God, you know the hurt and the struggles that we're going through right now. You know what's in this room. You know what's in our hearts. You know our pain. And we pray that you would help us in this moment to believe, to know, and to cling to the love that you've given us in Christ. Open our eyes, open our hearts. God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this love that God has given to us in Christ, the first thing that Paul wants us to see is that peace was given to us. This is what he hammers home in the first verse, that we have peace now in Christ. We have a supernatural peace. Uh, Just on the surface level, peace means we're not fighting anymore, right? We're not any longer at war with God, whereas before we were claiming to be our own kings and queens. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, said, Nope, God, you don't get to be in charge. We'll be in charge. We'll choose the rules around here. And they rebelled against God. And that led to death. Um, A little piece of advice for you. If you decide to rebel against God, if you decide to be the king, the queen of your own little realm, it's not going to go well for you. It's, It's not the good life. Paul says here, specifically, what we've been given in the gospel is peace. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we were at war with God. We were claiming kingship for ourselves. But that that wrath that was owed to us was poured out on Jesus. So the word is justified. We were made righteous. We were made just. One of the big words we talked about a few weeks ago is propitiation, right? Propitiation literally means that God is pleased with you in Jesus. God delights in you in Jesus. So before, we were at war, we were objects of wrath, we were enemies of God, and now there's peace, and things are good, and we've been reconciled to him. My question for you is, are you still fighting God, or have you come to those terms of peace yet with him? And for some of us, we believe that we have peace with God, but there's still parts of our life that we're trying to maintain jurisdiction and control over. We're saying, all right, God, you can take my life, but but you can't have... Uh, my pleasure. You can take my life, but you can't have my job. You can take my life, but you can't have my relationships, my sexuality, these other corners of my life. I'm going to hold on to those, and then I'll just give you the religious part of me. And that's, that's not really giving yourself to God at all. That's not really making peace with the king unless it's a complete surrender. I was watching this movie, which I don't recommend. It was kind of a semi-terrible movie, but Tarzan was interesting enough. And uh, in the movie, Tarzan is, of course, this, this great hero, right? Raised in the jungle. He's incredibly strong. He has these impressive knuckles from learning to walk like a gorilla. And uh, there's this one scene where he's going to fight the king gorilla so that he can pass through their territory, right? And if you've seen the movie, you know it's kind of this big buildup, and you think he's going to whoop the gorilla, right? But what happens? Spoiler alert. He gets his butt kicked, right? He just gets beat up. By the gorilla, and I thought that's that's a pretty good picture. You know, we've got the hero. We always think of ourselves as a hero in the story. Here I come. I'm gonna, I'm gonna defeat the enemy. And in our own story, we're more like Tarzan getting beat up by the gorilla. We 
we're not going to beat God, right? We're just going to cause more and more death and pain in our life. When we try to make ourselves kings and queens of our life, we're, we're drinking poison. We're going to these wells that can't satisfy us, that aren't good for us. So again, my question for you is, in what areas of your life are you fighting to maintain control? In what areas of your life are you saying, no, I'm going to be king? Versus surrendering to the good king who loves you. He wants your joy more than you do. It's interesting, the, the word peace, just on the surface, literally means an end of fighting, right? No more war. That's what peace means. And in the Greek, that's, that's the most literal translation of it. But there's a kind of a richer, fuller sense of the word from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Have you all heard the word shalom before? It's often a, a Jewish greeting or Hebrew greeting. And the word shalom has, has a lot more depth to it than just no more fighting. Shalom has this idea of everything being the way it's supposed to be, of the sweetness of the good life. So this good life that we are fighting for when we pursue sin, the Bible says that's what you actually get by faith when you trust in Christ. You actually get the good life. And so in this world, we only get little hints of it, right? Like when you see a beautiful sunset or sunrise or when you're enjoying a really good meal or when you're children are happy or when you're confident of your lover's care for you or when you have friends that you can just be yourself with. Those, just, those are like little moments, right? Little tastes of the good life, of shalom, of the way things are supposed to be. And what the Bible tells us is that we get that in Jesus, not in pursuing our sin. But we're also hard-headed. We think we're going to get it, especially because of all the commercials we watch, right? We think we're going to get it from taking the right pill or drinking the right bottle or going to the right restaurant or pursuing the right person or having the right job. And here Paul is saying, you, you get that peace, you get the shalom. There's no more fighting. And not just is there no more fighting, but life is the way it's supposed to be in Christ. Only in Him are you made right. Only in Him does God delight in you. So ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit, where, where are the places I'm still fighting? Where are the places where I'm still like, putting down my flag and still at war with King Jesus? Where are the places I'm trying to maintain control? What are the territories, the jurisdictions that you still want to hold on to? And pray that God would show you where those areas are so you can then surrender. You can then relinquish those to him. First step is confessing to God. 1 John 1, 8, 9, 10 talks about this. We lie when we don't say that there's any sin in our life. But if we confess... If we literally confess means say the same thing as God, if we say the same thing as God about our sin, admitting, yeah, I've been, I've been fighting for this jurisdiction, I've been fighting to be king here, God, but it's yours. If we confess, repent, turn that over to God, then he's faithful, he's just, he'll cleanse us, he'll forgive us, he'll take that away from us. James 5.18 is helpful as well. We don't just confess to God, but we confess to other people. James 5.18 says, confess to a brother, to a sister. Confess your sins one to another and then pray for each other that you may be healed. So just a couple of practical steps. God, where, where am I still fighting you? All right, I see that. I confess that to you. And you confess that to a brother or sister. We, we call that uh, community life around here. We have small groups. Uh, we call that discipleship groups. We have Celebrate Recovery. We have all kinds of places where we're trying to invite you to get involved in community with other people. But you need to confess your sins to God, but also confess your sins to a brother, to a sister, and pray, you'd be healed. You'd be set free, that you would enjoy the peace that God's made you for. 
The next thing that we see as we move through the text is standing. And this section is kind of complicated. In this section in verse 2, he says this, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul gives us a bunch of layers here. I'm trying to kind of sum up all these layers with standing. He's given us a new standing, the ability to stand at all, the ability to live life in this world at all is something he's given us by God's grace. You remember, grace is this idea that God's given us something we don't deserve. It's his kindness that's poured out on us. Even though we deserve wrath, we deserve punishment. He poured out the wrath that he had for us on Jesus. Jesus was punished for our sins, and the grace and the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus was was given to us. So again, he says it this way, verse 2, through him, Jesus, we've also obtained access By faith. So by faith, we have access, entrance, if you will, into this realm of grace. It's like we get to go into the mansion of God. We get to be in his house. Using the adoption imagery earlier, we're invited into God's presence. Whereas before, we were rebels that didn't want to be in God's presence. Now we're invited in through Jesus by faith in what he's done for us. That he took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So God delights in us. He invites us in. We're in this realm of grace. Grace in which we stand. And then it says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we know how standing in Christ, we have access into his presence. I grabbed a picture here to give you an image of access, and that's a doorman outside a fancy building in New York City. I've taken all my kids to New York. It's kind of a rite of passage. We have uh, relatives that live out there. So in their teen years, I've taken them all out to New York just for a fun trip to visit family, to see the city. And my youngest, this third trip we took recently, my youngest figured out, that if you act like you know the doorman, he'll let you in. Do you know that? So, you know, we're not really big city people, but now we're starting to figure these things out. Now, sadly, that doesn't work with heaven, right? Spiritually, that doesn't work. You can't just pretend you know him. You need Jesus. You can't just trick your way into the presence of God. What are the ways we try to trick our way into the presence of God? Well, I think one of the ways we try to trick our way into the presence of God is we try to pretend we're righteous, when we're not. We try to say, I've got my stuff together. I do good things. I help people. I'm nice. I don't cuss too much. I work well. Whatever it is, what are those things that you say, this makes me a good person. The doorman should let me in. Well, that's like tricking your way in. Because what Paul's been spending four chapters telling us is is none of us deserves to be in the presence of God. Our only hope is Jesus. Only Jesus deserves to be in the family, and that's freely given to us by faith. We trust in what Jesus has done for us, and we're given that access. He is our access. He is our entrance into the presence of God. And then he says some other interesting things here as well. So we have this access, this grace. We live in the realm of grace now with God. We stand in it. We have standing here. And then he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this word rejoice, this is a a totally fine translation, but you miss something uh, with this translation. We saw the word boast multiple times earlier in Romans. Do you remember the word boast? Talking about how Abraham couldn't really boast in his flesh, and we can't really boast in the law. We can't really boast in our performance. We can't really boast in what we've accomplished. Do you remember that? That was told to us multiple times. This is the same Greek word. He's saying, but now there's something we can boast in. So we couldn't boast in the flesh. I couldn't boast in how strong I am or how impressive I am 
or, hey, God, I'm a really nice guy and trick my way into heaven. But I can boast in this. He says we can boast or rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I can boast in the glory of God. You see, when we try to keep the law enough to impress God, or when we try to be righteous enough on our own, by our own strength, by our own flesh, that's all about our glory. So we can't boast or rejoice or cheer or celebrate or exalt in our glory. We can only boast, we can only rejoice, we can only cheer and celebrate God's glory. That's our hope. So you see that? Our hope is that God has brought his glory into our life. So that access we have, that standing that we have, that realm of grace that we live in, it's all about God getting the glory, not us. It's all about God being great and God being awesome and God being kind to us. It's not about our greatness or our kindness or how impressive we are. So what does this look like to live in this realm of of grace? How do we work that out in our real life? Um, You you might get tired of me going back to this. I I think I went back to this last week in in Philippians chapter 1. Paul sets up this tension. The Apostle Paul says that it would be better by far to be dead and to be in heaven with Jesus. We believe that heaven is where everything is perfect, right? And that the whole universe is heading towards this future. Romans 8 talks about this where all things are going to be just tied up and there's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more disease. That's the future we're headed for. And so Paul sees that future and says, it'd be better by far to be there, right? To be in in the future, to be in the presence of God. So my first question for you is, is, do you see that? Do you see the glory of your future and where you're headed? Because only when you see how glorious that is can you live in the hope of the glory now. Right? Only now can you rejoice in what God has for you if you recognize what's coming. What's interesting is, as Paul says, yeah, it'd be better by far to be there, but God's plan for me is to be here. And that's the second part of it, right? The second part of it is, yeah, it'd be better by far to be with Jesus, for this world to be over. Because when you're with Jesus, when you're in heaven, after this life, everything's made right. But God's got work for you to do. Church, God has a, a plan for you. He has a job for you here. Paul uses the term fruitful labor. And so my question is, do you understand that calling that God has on your life? That heaven is not now. That this life isn't the peak, right? You're headed for a future where all things are going to be made right. And you want to pull that into the present. You want to rejoice in the glory of God, the future that he has for you, the grace that you stand in now, the access into his presence that you've been given now, and you want to pull that into how you live your life now. Again, Paul says, fruitful labor. Paul says, yeah, of course I'd rather be dead and be with Jesus. But God has other plans for me. So you don't get to choose that time. He chooses that time for you. And as long as you're here, and as long as you're now, your job is fruitful labor. Bringing that glory, bringing that grace into the here and now. Knowing you've got access into the mansion of God. You belong to him. You're adopted by faith into his family. And he wants you to share that with other people. Two ways that this works itself out. Uh, a couple of specific applications, a couple of verses you could write down. One is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And here it's kind of what, what physical fruitfulness looks like, just kind of like living the normal life of obedience. He, he describes it this way. He says, the Thessalonians were known all around the Greek world for their love. 
They loved each other really well. I hope that could be said of our body someday. We love each other well. And he says, that's great. Keep loving each other well. And then he says, add to that love this, this thing in verse 11. He says, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, just as we instructed you, so you may walk properly before outsiders and to be, be dependent on no one. So he says, this is what the fruitful Christian life looks like, and it seems kind of boring. It's just like, live a good life, work hard, take care of your business. Like that, that's what it looks like to be fruitful in this world. Seems simple, but for a lot of us, we don't, we don't value that. Paul says, this is part of what it looks like to stand in the grace that God has for you. Just live the ordinary life. Say, this is God's calling on my life. I'm going to change diapers, plant trees, cook meals, go to work, love the people around me, live a quiet life, work with my hands. Paul says, that's, that's part of God's plan for you. And then the other, the other one that we would look at is in 1 Peter 3. And we might think of this more as the spiritual side of fruitfulness. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15. He talks about getting persecuted for doing what's right. And Peter says, make sure you're not getting persecuted for breaking the law, right? Make sure you're only getting persecuted for loving Jesus. Uh, if, if you start to be persecuted, sometimes that can frustrate you and you just kind of want to fight, right? He's like, don't turn into this fighter that's stirring up persecution. Just only be persecuted for doing what's right. And in verse uh, 13, or 14 and 15, he says this, don't have any fear of them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. So he says, life's going to be hard, but you're going to have hope in the midst of this hardness. And always be prepared to be able to articulate the hope that you have. So here's how I'd, how I'd say this. If your hope is based on having a good life, that's not a Christian hope. You don't have a reason to give to people that don't know the gospel. You don't have a defense to explain to them. He says, if in the midst of difficulty and suffering, you have hope, that hope is Jesus. And be prepared to be able to explain that to people. To be able to explain, my hope is in Jesus and it's not in my circumstances. My hope is in having access being in the family of God, belonging to him. It's not in my circumstances. It's in him. Be able to articulate that. And negatively, I would say, if, if you don't have that hope, you need to ask yourself, what are you hoping in? Right? Maybe you are hoping in the good life. Maybe you're living the good life, and that's a blessing. And thank God for that, but that, that can't be our hope. Our job can't be our hope. The pleasure we enjoy in life can't be our hope. Those are just gifts from our Savior's hands. The last thing that Paul's going to take us to here is endurance. And this is a hard one, right? Endurance is not anything we ask for. Um, endurance is a grace, I believe, that God gives to us, but it's not something we necessarily pursue because it's, it's painful. It involves suffering. So look at verses 3 through 5. In 3, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So first he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's the same word again, rejoice, that earlier was boast. It's, it's like the idea of exulting, cheering, hollering, shouting, exulting in what God is doing, right? And so he's saying, we rejoice in our sufferings. And I would kind of try to parse this because I think this is important. James says similar things, very similar language in James 1, so you could cross-reference that as well. 
James says to consider it all joy when you face various trials, right? And I think it's important as Christians that we don't kind of veer off into a Ned Flanders weirdness of saying, I love suffering, right? Getting in this weird like, you know, we're kind of like whipping ourselves and suffering is great and God loves suffering and suffering is awesome. We need to be careful that we don't veer off into that. Because I think the Bible taken as a whole would say suffering is bad. You don't want to suffer. But Jesus is so good that you can rejoice in Jesus in the midst of your suffering. And that's, I think, the distinction that needs to be made. It's, it's maybe kind of fine. It's like a razor's edge, but it's really important to say, suffering's bad, but I can rejoice in suffering because Jesus is good. God is so good that even in my suffering, I can rejoice in him. So he says, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. This word character literally means to be tested. And so what this means is when you go through hard things, you're tested. The suffering develops endurance. Endurance means literally digging in to God, clinging to him by faith, and that produces character, testedness. You're shown to be real, not fake. In the old days, if you were starting a new business in a small town, you would want to be a member of First Methobacterian Church so that you could build up your business, right? That's a fake name I, I made up. Um, you'd want to be a member of a church so you could build up your business. It was good for business in America in the old days to be a Christian. Our culture's shifting a little bit. It's, it's questionable now if the culture as a whole smiles on Christianity. And so what the gospel is saying here is that if your faith is based on Jesus because of who Jesus is, not because it's just good for business, then you'll be tested and shown to be real. Then you'll have real character. Then you'll have endurance in the midst of sufferings, right? You're not following Jesus because he promises you no suffering. You're not following Jesus because he promises you that you will be fat and happy and never have any problems in life. You're following Jesus because he's worth it, and he's worth far more than the temporary circumstances that you're going through. One of the pictures of this word endurance that I think is really helpful uh, is from football. There's these metal bars that we used to do training with when we played football, and uh, they would have you get low and run under the bars, right? And what would that do? That would train you to stay low, because what would happen if you, if you stood up when you're running under the bars? You'd get smacked in the head by the metal bar, right? Um, for someone like me, it was especially important, because as you can see, I'm not all that different than I was in high school, tall and skinny. And so in football, when you're tall and skinny, if you stand up straight, you're like a feather that'll just get knocked over, Right? But the lower I would get, the more my cleats would dig into the ground. And then I'm not relying on my strength anymore, right? I'm relying on, on the weight of the ground, the rock that I'm standing on. And so it's a beautiful picture. The word endurance, the Greek word is literally hupomeno. It's translated often in the old translations as steadfast. So it's like you're, you're digging into the ground and the strength of the ground instead of your own strength is what you're relying on. And so this picture in our faith is that in the midst of suffering and difficulty. It's an opportunity for us to not just rely on ourselves, but to dig more deeply into the Christ that we are hoping in and digging into him instead of our circumstances. And we're going to get knocked around. We're going to go through hard things, and that helps us develop this steadfastness, this endurance, because you're not strong enough to face suffering on your own, but Jesus is. And so he's calling you to, to dig into him and make his strength your strength, instead of relying on your own strength. 
my question is, have you faced that kind of suffering in your life where you've learned that, that God is good and you can trust him? Again, he's, he doesn't make suffering wonderful, but he's wonderful in the midst of suffering. And as you, you cling to him by faith, he will show his grace to you in the midst of difficult times. Jesus gives us a great example of what this looks like, how this is fleshed out in our life when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, um, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering from me. But, but not my will, your will be done. I think that's appropriate. That's how we should pray in the midst of suffering. We, we pray with our friends that are sick to be healed. We pray with our friends that are struggling to be encouraged. We don't pursue suffering. We don't think suffering is good. But we think that God is so good that we can cling to him in the midst of our suffering that we can enjoy him by faith even when we're going through hard times when everything else is being ripped away and he's all that's left, we recognize more clearly that he's enough. So this is not what any of us wants, but, but in Jesus, this is the reality that we can enjoy. The way Paul says it in, in Romans 8 is that, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can tear that away. No physical pain, no emotional breakdown that you go through can tear away the love that God has for you in Christ. He's, he's with you in the midst of your suffering. The way this all ends is in uh, verse 5. Verse 5, he kind of roots all this hope that we have, this love that we have been given in the Holy Spirit. It says, hope does not put us to shame. And it's interesting, just a sidebar before I go there, he said that we hope in the glory of God when we're given grace. You remember that earlier? And then now he's saying this character in our life produces more hope. Do you see how that works? When you meet Jesus, you're hoping in all that he's doing for you. And as you grow and cling to him by faith in the midst of suffering, he actually builds more hope in you as you cling more and more to him instead of your immediate circumstances. And so then he says, this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the, the promise that we have is not just these abstract comment, uh, concepts like love, you have love in Jesus, and peace, you have peace in Jesus, and you have standing in Jesus, and uh, you have endurance. You know, these are great things. These are kind of like values, though, that can kind of be floating in the air. One of the beautiful things in Christianity is that God doesn't just give us stuff like he's kind of at a distance pouring blessings on us but he gives us himself. He gives us himself. That's what he's saying here. He's given us himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our hope. The person of God himself. The Holy Spirit has been poured out into your hearts. That's how you know the love of God. He, he gives you himself, and that, that's our hope. A God who loves us. So no matter how much you may feel like you're alone, you're forgotten, you're abandoned in this world, God says, no, I'm, I'm with you. I love you. I proved that by giving my son Jesus for you. And now I'm going to pursue you in love and, and fill you with my Holy Spirit. I'm going to come and be with you. As Jesus says in John 14, I'm not leaving you as orphans. You know how I'm not going to leave you as orphans? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And then you'll know. And then you'll know. And your heart will be able supernaturally to cry out, Abba, Father. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you for the supernatural love that you've given us in Christ, how you've 
filled us with that love through your Holy Spirit living within us. We pray, God, that you would help us to know that in the midst of our suffering, that you would help us to to trust you more than our circumstances. Thank you for showing your grace to us. Thank you for showing your kindness to us. We pray that you would change us now, that you would send us out to share that love that's been given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.